from prison. Now, he was in prison four or five, four, maybe between four and seven times, but totaling overall five years of his life he spent in prison. But he seemed fine. Like, he probably wasn't fine, but he just had a good attitude. And we'll find out why he had a good attitude later. But he seemed okay with being in prison because he made the most of it. And one of my favorite Instagram accounts is dogs stuck in things, but they seem okay with it. And so I've got a few pictures just to show you what, like this guy, this is just what I view Paul as. Like, he's stuck in prison, but like, it's okay. Like, the last one's the best. He's like, oh, it's okay. (laughs) Doesn't matter, I'm in prison, but whatever. Anyway, he had a great perspective, and we'll find out why. Um, I'm going to read out this passage from Philippians 3, but just before I do that, a little bit of context to explain. Paul is writing to um, some Christians, and the Christians he wrote to were a mixture of Jewish Christians and Gentiles. Gentiles is just anyone who's not Jewish. So the Jewish Christians were like, we've been following the law of Moses. He gave us 613 laws that we're meant to follow. We're following them, and then we also love Jesus too. And the Gentile Christians were like, awesome, we love Jesus. And some of the Jewish Christians were like, well, then you've got to get circumcised because the 613 laws say that you should. And the Gentiles were like, don't really want to do that for obvious reasons. And they were, that basically, some of the Jewish Christians were telling them, you need to come under this law that Moses gave us. And the Gentiles were like, oh, that's so much. We just want the Jesus bit. So Paul says, don't worry, guys. Your right standing with God doesn't come from the law. It comes from Jesus. So that's what he's saying when he talks about mutilators. That's what he's referring to. He's like, don't worry about circumcision. It all, it, you're covered through Jesus. You can't earn your salvation. You can't strive for it and earn it like Jesus, Jesus gives you it. And then he says, like, but if we were going to be talking about earning salvation, let me tell you how great I was at earning salvation. He lists off all the ways that he was really holy. In his, by his pre-Jesus standards, he's like, I was so holy. And then he's like, but because of Jesus, I don't care anymore about all that stuff. It's garbage. So hopefully that will make sense as I read Philippians 3, 1 to 14. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for these dogs, these evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, and he means spiritually circumcised. Um, We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I want to know, oh no, I've skipped a verse. I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to read it from my actual Bible now. I'm so sorry. I was playing around with this um, with this uh, talk a few minutes before I printed it, and it's showing. Oh, the disorganization. Right, here we go. So, I was so enthusiastic that I tried to hurt the church. No one could find fault with the way that I obeyed the law. These things were important to me, but now I think they're worth nothing because of Christ. Not only those things, but I think that all things are worth nothing compared to the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've lost all those things, and now I know they're worthless rubbish. This allows me to have Christ and belong to him. Now I am righteous, I am on right standing with God, not because I followed the law, but because I believed in Christ. God uses my faith to make me right with him. Here we go. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Yeah. 
no, this is right. No, sorry, that was right. <laughs> Not that I've already obtained all this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense based on what I said. Um, now, he, Paul has this line where he says, like, everything is garbage compared to knowing Christ. I'm going to show a video. This may or may not land with you guys. It's from the film Madagascar, and the context is that the lemurs, no, the, the, the four main animals who are, like, the, the characters in the story that we're following, they've just arrived, and all these lemurs are, like, really scared of them. They're just debating, like, how do we feel about these new scary animals? And I will make it relevant to the Bible right afterwards. Here we go. <laughs> There we go. Do you see where I'm going? You get it, right? <laughs> um, to explain, it's that little lemur at the end where he goes, I like them so much, you hate them compared to how much I like them. And that's what Paul's saying. He's, like, he's not saying everything else in my life that was good is now garbage because I know Jesus and there's nothing that's enjoyable or anything like that. What he's saying is that I love Jesus so much that everything else is garbage. So hopefully that will stick with you a little bit. It's, it's not a literal thing, but he's just saying like, Jesus is my first and my everything and nothing else matters really because of him. But it's not to say that nothing else actually matters. It's hyperbole. So here we go. Paul's main point in writing this is that salvation does not rely on us. It relies on Jesus. Our own like righteousness and law-abidingness cannot set us straight with God and our attempts to get right with God are fruitless. But the good news is that we're not left stranded because Jesus was able to make us right with God. And he's done that entirely. He's not done it slightly or almost done it. It's completely done. Once and done, you're not more saved or less saved. You're just straight up saved. If you have given your life to Jesus, then you're good. You're saved. We couldn't do it. Jesus could do it. He did it. It's done. There we go. So we can't strive for salvation or be ambitious about it. But right after saying that you can't strive for salvation, he talks about striving. And there are some words that he uses, some phrases that may come up now. Sorry, Abby. Here we go. He talks about like obtaining the goal and pressing on, taking hold, straining towards the head. This is all quite strivey language. And um, so I think he's not talking about salvation. What is he talking about? Now, I'm going to read this passage again, or part of this passage, in the Amplified Version, which is just a different translation of the Bible, which fleshes it out a little bit more. He says this. I want to know him. He's talking about Jesus. I want to know him, experientially becoming more thoroughly acquainted with him, understanding the remarkable wonders of his person more completely. And in that same way, experience the power of his resurrection, which overflows and is active in believers, so that I may share in the fellowship of his sufferings, by being continually conformed inwardly into his likeness, even to his death, so that I may attain the resurrection that will raise me from the dead. So all this pressing on and straining language, he's talking about the bit after salvation. Now, if you're in the room and you think, well, I'm a Christian, I know I'm saved, I know God loves me, he's forgiven me, wonderful, then you are right, correct, you are loved, you are forgiven. But it's like you've read the first chapter because there's a bit after salvation that comes. And that is this Christian word that we use, sanctification. Paul is ambitious for sanctification. 
And he uses all this determined language to describe his deepening relationship with Jesus and his transformation through the Holy Spirit. In theological circles, we call it sanctification. If you're playing sermon bingo right now, which sometimes people do in church, uh, obviously not me, um, get ready to tick one off because I'm going to say it. In the original Greek of Paul's letters, the word sanctification is hagiosmos, and it means to be holy or set apart. And the way that Christians become holy and set apart, the way that we go after sanctification, is through the power of the Spirit, we pursue Jesus first and foremost. So Jesus makes us righteous, makes us stand right with God, and the Holy Spirit makes us holy. And we can talk about growing in faith, going deeper with God, pursuing God, or Paul says, being transformed into Jesus' likeness. And it all means the same thing. And this is where we get spiritually ambitious. We participate in this bit. We can't strive for salvation, but we can strive to increase in holiness and transformation that Jesus gives us. How does this happen? Well, firstly, I say join a small group. Because if you gather with friends and you pray and you read the Bible and you invite God into your daily life and you spend time with him, like that's how it'll happen. If you make it your determined aim to pursue God, then you'll find many ways to grow in your faith and be sanctified. But I want to put it to you tonight that what Paul is getting at across the whole book of Philippians is that you have to have Jesus first and foremost on the throne of your life. Jesus is king. Jesus as the center of it all. Anything that takes your focus away from him, we have to treat it, like Paul says, like garbage. And that's not that we should think about Jesus every single second of the day because nothing will get done and life should happen. But he should be our life's ultimate trajectory. Throughout the, throughout the Bible, this, this theme of like putting God first is there all the time. It's in the Ten Commandments, and Jesus talks about the greatest commandment. He tells parables about this stuff. Where's the greatest commandment? Because I can't remember it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So this idea of having God first and foremost is throughout the Bible. Um, and, and sometimes Christians talk about the throne, like have Jesus on the throne. And what that means is, well, it's language from a time when the king and the throne and the queen and all that stuff it actually meant something. But like to us, we could equally refer to having Jesus in the driving seat or like Jesus is a CEO or something. And basically what Paul's saying throughout Philippians is like, get everything else off the throne. Nothing should be on the throne but Jesus. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have good things going on in your life, like have hobbies. Yes, the world needs normal Christians who have hobbies and a life outside of church as well. But you need to get those things off the throne. It's Jesus' throne. So take career ambition and just put it to the side of the throne. Take like your relationships with family and friends and romantically, take that off the throne. Take your comfortable lifestyle that you really enjoy and are very comfortable with, take it off the throne. That's Jesus' throne. A few quick things before I hand over to Rachel. What kind of thing, when I say like putting stuff on the throne, what kind of things are on the throne and what are the signs that they're there? One thing I think that we often can accidentally elevate above Jesus is control. Control over our finances, over our lifestyle, our timetables, our schedules, career, just life circumstances. We can want the control instead of giving it to Jesus. Self-image, I think, is another big one. Having Instagram and Snapchat and everything like this, it basically makes us our own PR team, and we can carefully curate how we present ourselves to the world. I think that's another element of control. Relationships, 
family, friendships, romantic, they often end up elevated above Jesus accidentally, and we regularly need to just take him right back down and put Jesus back there. For me, I'd say my biggest deal is leisure and comfort. Like, I want a leisurely lifestyle. I want a comfortable lifestyle, and, and that stuff um, I can elevate above Jesus sometimes. And the clues that you've got something in, like on the throne instead of Jesus, I think if you turn to this thing, like this hobby or this attitude or whatever, for comfort, peace, direction, or guidance. If you go to that thing, like if you go to those relationships or you factor your life around that thing rather than God, that's a bit of a clue. If it's a sensitive area that you don't want other people to comment on and you're reluctant to let God speak into that area of your life, that's another clue that something's on the throne. And if it came down to it, would you choose this thing over going to church, reading the Bible, praying, meeting with Christian friends, spending time with God, that's a, good, that's a big red flag that something's on the throne other than Jesus. So if you forget everything else from this talk, I beg that you would remember this, that Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Knowing Jesus surpasses all the value of everything that we can attain in the world. And compared to him, everything is rubbish. Even good things are rubbish compared to how good it is to knowing him. Now Rachel's going to come and share about some other stuff from Philippians 3. Ella, yeah, amazing. Thanks so much, Ella. Really kind of set up my part of the talk. I'm going to be talking about pressing on. How do we in the knowledge of all that Ella has shared with us, how do we kind of keep pressing on? Not that we press on for salvation, because Ella eloquently just said, our salvation comes from Jesus to us. But there's a, there's a kind of um, endorsement that Paul gives us, despite all of this, and because of all of this, we press on. And I'm going to hopefully shed a bit of light on how to do that. Now, have you ever had to press on or try really hard to do something, to kind of get somewhere or achieve something or succeed in an area of life? Maybe it's something like, you know, a job that you've really had to work at. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know, a diet or exam or driving test you've had to take multiple times. Maybe it's recovery. You've got, got to keep pressing on. Maybe it's pursuing somebody, you know, that you really like and think, I want to have a date with that person. I'm going to pursue them appropriately. Um, you know, I'm going to press on. I'm going to, and um, I, yeah, I won't get, I've got a story about that, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, but I had to press on for my maths GCSE because I failed it not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. I'm, yeah, thank you. <laughs> But I got there in the end. I failed it when I was 16. I failed it when I was 17. I took it again when I was 19 because I wanted to be a teacher. And you had to have mass GCSE to be a teacher. And I just thought, okay, God doesn't want to be me to be a teacher because I can't go and do a degree to teach because I can't get my blooming maths. But do you know, I got it when I was 30 years old. Three small children and I managed to pass it. <laughs> and I got a B. It's incredible. But sometimes we, you know, we have to just keep pressing on for the things that we really want to go for. And maybe all of us can relate to that kind of desire, that urge, so, yeah, I'm not going to let go of this. I'm going to press on, I'm going to try hard, I'm going to focus, I'm going to be diligent. And the Apostle Paul loves Jesus. As Ella said, he loves Jesus and he knows that Jesus loves him. And that is his foundation, that is his stabilizing point. 
and thing to kind of put his feet on and stand on, which enables him to press on and push through. Don't forget, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's not on a comfy couch with a cappuccino, kind of, you know, thinking about life. He is in prison in chains, unable to do the ministry that he feels God has called him to do, and yet he presses on. And I've got two keys that I want to give you from this passage, which I think Paul kind of puts in deliberately in Philippians 3 to teach us how to press on and what that looks like. And the first key is this. In verse 10, he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. The power of his resurrection and the participation of his sufferings. The message says, I want to experience his resurrection power and be a partner in his suffering. He wants to be a partner in Jesus' suffering. No. Um, But do you know what? I know you know this, but I'm just going to articulate it. Being a Christian does not make us immune, does it, from the hard stuff of life, from suffering, from affliction, from trouble and strife, from the difficult things that come our way. We don't kind of go through life um, kind of riding above that on some sort of gliding escalator, looking down at everybody else that is struggling. We are in, in the mosh pit with everybody else, dealing with the same things that everybody else is dealing with. But do you know what? When we identify with Christ in his sufferings, we are doing just that. We are identifying with Christ in his sufferings. It says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And Paul is saying, even when the suffering comes, you can press on. And it might not look like what you think it should look like. It might not look like victorious living and being super spiritual and kind of being the person that everybody's going, oh, wow, look at them. It might mean quiet, prayerful, honest, struggling. It might mean asking for help and admitting that you need someone to pray with you and pray for you. I think we need to move away from the narrative that sometimes is around even church, even maybe sometimes this church, that Christians don't struggle Christians don't have hard things to face, because we do. And when we do, we are identifying with Christ. There's a fellowship with Christ that I believe we only actually get and experience when we're in the valley, when we're in the hard place, when we're in the struggling place. But there's more than that, because it says knowing the power of his resurrection and what that means is when, when you become a Christian, the New Testament calls it being born again. Jesus describes it to, to someone. He says, well, what, you know, how can I be born again? I can't go back into my mother. That is just not going to work. Jesus is like, no, it's spiritual birth. You're born again. And there's this power that comes that means that we are kind of like living this not quite fully resurrected body. That comes after we die and we're with Jesus forever. But there's this power that resurrected Jesus from the dead that is the same power that is available for us which means that when we're identifying with Christ in his sufferings, when we're struggling, when it's really hard, the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, is the same power that is at work in us. And so when we struggle and when we suffer and when we're in affliction, 
God can meet us in that place and not just sit with us in a place. That's great, but he can bring redemption. He can bring healing. He can bring breakthrough. He can bring peace. And even if we don't move through the suffering in the way that we want to, nothing can separate us from the love of God, Paul says in Romans 8. Not even death can separate us from the love of God. When we know Jesus, Jesus knows us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. So that's the first key that I think Paul wants us to really grasp hold of, to enable us to press on through the hard stuff. The second key that I think Paul wants us to get hold of is he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's a really sort of beautiful, unusual picture that Paul uses. I press on to take hold of that of Christ in the way that Christ has taken hold of me. This is my, I'm coming into land. He's saying that Christ has taken hold of you. He has kind of taken the first move. He got hold of you first. And as he's got hold of us, we can take hold of him. Now, when my kids were little and they didn't want to go in the buggy, they wanted sometimes to walk. But when they're really little, they can't walk very well. They kind of trip over and they get easily distracted and they wobble quite a lot, gusts of wind, and they're like, because they're just toddlers. And so they'd put their little hands in mine and I'd put my big hand around them. And we'd walk together slowly. They'd be curious looking at everything. And sure enough, it wouldn't take long before they fall over. But actually, because I had their hand in mine, I didn't necessarily stop them from falling, because I too can be distracted. But I would like, I'd pick them up and put them back on their feet. And there may be tears, there may be trouble and strife, but I've got them. I've got them. Surely I've got them. Nothing's going to take their little hand out of my hand. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Christ has taken hold of you. You take hold of Christ. God is saying his, the mercy of God, the love of God, the salvation that Jesus has given us is like this incredible power that envelops us, which means we don't just survive life, but we should be thriving. And I don't mean thriving, but always doing amazing and we're on the top of the world, we're always smiling, we're always like, joy, yes, Jesus. I mean, like we're authentic but we are trusting God to lead us. Like Ella's saying about sanctification, we are trusting God to transform us, to be more like him, because his Holy Spirit is in us. We've got spiritual ambition to see God not only work in us personally, in a private way, making us more like Jesus, but we've got spiritual ambition to see the Holy Spirit work through us to transform the people around us and to make a difference in our workplace, in our uni, in, in our communities, in our families, in our streets. Because God isn't just interested in just little old me. He loves the world. And his plan for the world is to work through us. I mean, it's not a great, I kind of don't know what he's thinking, really. Because I've looked at me, and I'm thinking, his plan is to use me to change the world. Yes. And you, I mean, I can tell with you because you like to look great. But I look at me and I'm like, really? But that's his plan. So he wants us to be spiritually ambitious, not for ourselves. There's no place in that for Paul's teaching. He's not interested in making us look good or better than anyone else. It's humility. It's service. It's getting down low. But it's 
the foundation of knowing that you're loved by Jesus, that you're secure, that your hand is in his and his hand is around yours, which means we can trust God for big things and for small things. We can say to God, how much money should I give away? Should I date this person? What job should I do? What A-levels should I take? Which university should I go to? Who should I speak to about you this week? What difference can I make to this city? Help me dream big for you and for your kingdom and for your plans. You know, God has spiritual ambition for this city. He wants to see it loving God. He wants to see people on their knees before Jesus. He wants to see people reconciled to their Father in heaven. And he wants to use us in that. So as I conclude, and as we have some ministry time, I'm going to ask Ella to come up. I want to just remind us all, myself included, that we, we minister, we do life, we make choices from a really secure place, that Jesus loves us. He is for us. He has saved us. That is secure. Nothing can separate us from that fact. But also he wants that to be like a springboard, a foundation, a place to live from, which means we can have spiritual ambition. We can trust him with the hard stuff. And we can navigate the valleys that are surely going to come our way. But he will be with us in the darkest place and giving us what we need. Can I get an amen? Oh, yeah, I got one. Amen. 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 Thanks, Susan. Come on, Ella. So, um, Ella and I wore stripes because we thought that would be good. Um, but we want to create a space to offer prayer if anybody would like it. Because we recognize that, you know, you can hear the word, you can hear stuff. But actually, where the kind of rubber hits the road is when the Holy Spirit ministers to us. And so in a minute, we're going to ask anyone that would like some prayer to come forward. We're going to ask the ministry team to come forward as well. And we're going to offer to pray for people. But there were sort of three areas that we, we personally felt as we had chatted and prayed and prepared this evening that we wanted to kind, of, to kind of go towards and kind of offer. But it might be that God's doing something completely unrelated to what we've said. And we're so cool with that. So if you want some prayer about something unrelated, just come on down and get some prayer, and we'd, we'd love to pray for you. But the, the two things I wanted to say was, you know, do you, do you need a bit of fresh energy? Are you, do you feel like you're floundering a bit? Maybe you're in the valley. Maybe you're feeling afflicted or troubled, or life is tricky, and you need a sort of fresh touch of the Holy Spirit to give you what you need for the next step. Often we don't know what's ahead of us, but we need something for the next step. And the Holy Spirit is here and he wants to meet with you. And so come and get some prayer. The second thought that I had was, spiritual ambition is a strange word, but I feel like God wants us to dream big. Not kind of like in a ridiculous sense, but in a kind of trusting him sense. That he wants to work through us. And so often we kind of limit what he does because we're not listening or we don't believe he can use us, or we kind of talk ourselves out of things. And I, I just feel like there might be some people in the room tonight that that really resonates with them. And we'd just love to bless you and pray for you and ask the Holy Spirit to give you that kind of like, that power, that oomph that you need to take another step towards whatever it is God's asking you to do. Yeah, and then lastly, 
we wanted to pray for people who feel like uh, I've taken Jesus off the throne, something else is there, and you feel you need to surrender your life to Jesus. And it might be the first time, or it might be the hundredth time. Being a Christian does not exclude you from needing to recommit regularly. And um, yeah, if that's, if that's you, we really want to make room for you to respond and say, okay, yeah, I, I realize actually there's, there's something else there and I want to take it off the throne and put you back where you belong, Jesus. Paul's the whole way through Philippians, he's just obsessed with Jesus as, as the complete central point of his life. And that's what we want to be spiritually ambitious for. So if that's you, then we'll make space for that as well. Um, I just wonder, maybe if, if we stand, if you're willing and able, then please stand. And um, in a moment, we're going to, yeah, worship team, come back up, thank you. In a moment, we will invite you forward, if you're responding to any of this, to come, come down here at the front. But for now, if you just close your eyes or put your hands out, whatever posture you feel comfortable praying in, and I'll just pray over us before we invite you down. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here and that you are so committed to us committing back to you. I thank you for that picture of us taking hold of your hand and your hand enveloping ours. I thank you that we're not trying to win you over, but you just love us so much and your commitment to our growing and our, our growing in relationship with you is more than we could ever imagine. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you now to come and speak to us and stir us. Where are the places that we have taken you off the throne? Where are the places that we need to dream bigger? Where are the places that we need you, Spirit of God, to come and give us fresh wind and fresh energy for pressing on where it feels like it's too hard right now. We invite you into those places. Come Holy Spirit.